all around the country and world. We are glad you're here today. If you've been paying attention in America or anywhere else, if your head's not been in the sand, you know that this is election week 2020. And it's been a heck of a year, 2020. And officially, the results aren't in, at least for the United States president's race. Um, and here in Kansas, there's some local ballots being counted for state house representatives. So it's still ongoing. So rather than talk about the results or do anything that, I thought I would alleviate what's probably a heavy tension that's dwelling in all of us. And like any faithful man of God, I thought, how can I best give us a hope for the future? Well, the gospel, and then dad jokes. I want to say that these jokes have been personally eye-rolled and groaned at by my very own children, and so I feel that they meet the bar for being election day dad jokes. What's the difference, for instance, between a presidential election and a NASCAR race? In NASCAR, they put their corporate sponsors on their shirts. Do you know that I paid closer attention this year than I have ever before to the lawn signs for the different candidates? Yeah, in the primaries, I voted for a real estate agent. And finally, did you hear about the senator who won re-election even though he didn't have any thumbs? Yeah, he completely ran unopposed. That's my favorite one. All right. Well, I did want to tell you a story, actually. It's not really a joke. It's a true story. Um, it's from an AP government class, advanced placement, if that's uh, a new term for you. It's an advanced placement government class, kind of an honors class for high school students in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And the AP teacher, her name is Casey Williams, she tells this story. They were discussing what it means or what the qualifications are to be elected president. And they're actually very simple. The United States Constitution, um, an individual must be a natural born citizen age 35 years or older. And there wasn't much to say until one woman, one young woman, a student, raised her hand and said, that seems so unfair. And she went on about how it was excluding people who might be immensely talented. And, and in Santa Fe, there's a lot of first-generation immigrants from Mexico and other Central American places, very talented strivers that are going to become, you know, doctors, lawyers, pilots, and, you know, everything else. So you could see her point, and the teacher was nodding, but she kept going on, and she started to tear up. It seemed super, super personal. And then their jaws dropped to the floor when she said, I think that any American ought to have the same chance, whether they're natural born or C-section. <laughs> yeah, the class broke up laughing. But it makes me think, we can get really passionate about things if we kind of miss the point. We can get really passionate about things if we don't quite have the storyline straight, if an important detail is wrong. And I think the same thing happens to Christians. We can plant our flags in debates and arguments, even political campaigns, based on a faulty assumption. And the problem with Christianity is that we have planted so many battle flags. We're on TV talking about so many extraneous things. And sometimes we've missed the main point of the story. A critical detail that makes all the difference in how passionate we get and how effective we are at God's mission to us 
which is changing lives with Jesus' love. So, this, week's, this week is the first of three sermons in my series, Make More Stories. And it's not just about getting the story of God straight, it's about getting, getting the story of the local church straight, and it's about getting a decision about our life straight. What do we want our story in life to be? Do we want it to be part of God's bigger story? Or do we want to be this little hero in our own little story? That just us and the people closest to us or the people who have values different than God's will be amazed at. This is a story about us these three weeks. And I'm inviting you to pray and consider whether you are willing to make God's story your story. And whether you're willing to make a sacrifice to help make that happen. So, let's get started. The Bible has a lot of books in it, it has a lot of stories in it, but most importantly, it has the big story of God. And I'm going to summarize it for you because it could be easy to misunderstand. The main point of the whole Bible can be summarized in English in three words. God is love. And some of you might be saying, yeah, I've seen that on like memes and posters, but that doesn't seem very Bible-like, not very religious. It's pretty generic and, and universal. Well, let me tell you, it does come from Scripture. It's 1 John 4, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. And then it goes on with some beautiful other language. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take our sins away. As a sacrifice, God loved us enough to sacrifice for us. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to expression in us. In other words, people see God because they see us. So, God is love, and then God created a world to love. You know, God himself knows that he needs something to love. God himself is a family. And so God decided to make a family on earth who could be the, the learning laboratory for what love is for the rest of the world. I say God's family. You know what I mean. The, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, the, the provider love of a parent, the forgiving, comforting love of a sibling who's gentle and wise, and the, the whisper of love from the spirit of wisdom that comes in the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. It's, it's a family, it's God, and it's love. So, God decided he wanted to give family to the world. And he started with the family of Abraham and Sarah, decided he would adopt them and make them into a nation and they could teach the world. They could be a light to the nations. And so he did that. But as every family knows, as you grow up as individuals, as you go through life struggles as a family, sometimes you get things right. A lot of times you get things wrong. You make mistakes and then you learn from them. And in the scripture are marvelous stories of how God's people learned from their own mistakes, from God's revelations, from God's correction even, and how they learned and how they tried to get closer and closer to understanding who God is and to living a life that's full and rich. 
the story I want to tell you today kind of has to do with those dad jokes. It has to do with the election. The story is how God showed the people of Israel in, in the old covenant days what it meant what it meant to choose a leader and what it meant to behave as a leader. And ironically, I want to tell you the story of an electoral college meeting in ancient Israel in 931-932 BC, approximately. It's a little bit of a long story, so sit back, make sure your coffee's hot, and let me tell you the story of how Israel chose a king and rejected a king. Yeah, so it goes like this. From the beginning of their, since they returned from Egypt, the people of Israel were governed in 12 tribes with lots of clans and sub-clans, right? It was a patriarchal system based on these tribes, based on the, son of J the sons of Jacob, one of the early patriarchs. And this is how Israel lived. They were a, a nomadic, sometimes uh, increasingly farming, agrarian community. They settled in various places in the Promised Land. Of course, after they got out of Egypt, went through the wandering in the wilderness, they fought battles with some of their enemies, and they lived in a tense kind of stalemate with countries around them, many of whom were, were much stronger, better equipped with, with weapons of war, um, stronger because they had monarchies that could forcibly conscript and draft people. And in, in distinction to that, the Jewish people, they called up leaders when they needed them. God appointed kind of tribal uh, citizen soldiers to, to lead, small, lead small armies when there was a need for an army. And God showed his faithfulness through that because even though they were often outgunned, outmanned, well not gunned, right? Outweaponed, outmanned, they were never outpowered. Well, sometimes. Most of the time they weren't outpowered because they followed God's word. They followed God's will for the particular battle or the conflict and they proved themselves faithful. But after a while, this kind of easy citizen soldier of low-key, low-key, call-me-when-you-need-me judges started to look kind of, kind of broken and weak compared to the, the glamorous, flashy monarchies around them where the kings had chariots and where they had concubines and where they had servants that would run alongside the chariots like secret service agents. They got to see these kings and their strong weapons and they, they noticed that they had this rush inside of them when they saw that and they wondered why their country couldn't have it too. They wanted, they wanted to have a monarchy, a kingship like the other nations. Now, God had never wanted that for them because as we've learned, kind of monarchy is a bad idea. In fact, even democracy is a pretty hard idea. There's a lot of corruption even in a democracy where the people ostensibly have the ability to, to vote all the time. So he, he tried to dissuade them from starting a monarchy, a, a government by kings, but they kept protesting. And so the person that he had kind of, well, the person who was his ambassador to the tribes of Israel, the prophet Samuel, he was the intermediary between what the people wanted and what God wanted. God and he had a, had a powwow. And God said, look, tell them what's going to happen if they pick a king, and hopefully you can talk them out of it. So here we go. This is the way the king, this is the way the kind of king that you're talking about operates, Samuel told the people. He'll take your sons and make soldiers of them, chariotry, cavalry, infantry, regimented in battalions and squadrons. He'll put some forced, he'll put some to forced labor, 
on his farms, plowing and harvesting, and others to making weapons of war and chariots so he can ride in luxury. He'll put your daughters to work as beauticians and waitresses and cooks. He'll conscript your best fields, your vineyards, your orchards, and hand them over to his special friends. He'll tax your harvests and your wineries to support his extensive bureaucracy. Your prize workers and your best animals, he'll take for himself, for his own use. He'll put a tax on your flocks and you'll end up no better than slaves. And the day will come when you cry in desperation out to me because of this very king you're asking me for now. And God will not listen. But the people didn't listen to Samuel when he said this to them. No, they cried, we will have a king to rule us. Then we'll be just like the other nations. Our king will rule us and lead us and fight our battles. Samuel took what they said back to God. They powwowed and God just said, Samuel, do what they want. Get them a king. So the people got what they wanted. And if you've if you've read some of the Old Testament, even, if, even in children's books, you know who the kings were, right? You know, Saul and good old David and, and wise old Solomon. Now, David, Saul was kind of the, the junior varsity king, didn't do a lot of things right, fumbled a lot, and ended up not really, you know, winning a championship. Saul was a struggle. But David, David, the one that we sing carols about, that we that we really learn a lot from. David was the founding father of the country. He was kind of like George Washington to Americans, except not totally with the humility. David had an ability to get pretty proud. Um, he, was, he could be humble and teachable, which is why God loved him, but he had a problem with pride. He did, he was an effective military guy. He conquered Jerusalem and he made it the capital. He won battles. He made their country feel important and exceptional. And despite having that imperfect life where he overlooked pretty grievous sins of his family, which he probably caused by his own grievous sins to his family, think of David and Bathsheba, right? Despite having an imperfect life and a quick temper, he did have the ability to repent and to learn to be teachable. And God loved him for that. Now his son Solomon was a smoother operator either than David. Uh, also, he, smoother operator than David. He forged alliances. He built the city up. He made the the capital look really great. He built the temple finally that David had collected the money for. And he was wise in many many ways. But over time, all that politicking and taxing and building programs built him up so much in his own mind that he lost track of how we got there. And he started worshiping all the other gods with his wives, you know, probably to keep the peace and make sure they were happy and make sure their, their fathers who were kings around, the, around the, the Near East were happy. But he lost track and he lost the humility that's essential for a godly leader. And so when he passed away, the country was pretty stressed out and pretty unrighteously led. And his son, so David's grandson, Solomon's son, was King Rehoboam. And obviously in, in Judea, the, the home country, the homeland around Jerusalem, they loved Rehoboam and they wanted him to be the king and he certainly expected to be like his father and his grandfather were. But to ratify it, they had to get all 12 tribes of Israel to agree. Right? So, so the two tribes of, of southern Israel, Benjamin and Judah, they, they were on board. But they called a meeting with the ten tribes of the north. 
And they came together, and the ten tribes of the north by this time were called Israel, and then in Judah, or David, the name after King David was the name of the south part of the country. So they had this meeting, and the people said to them, the people said to Rehoboam, look, your dad made life hard on us. He worked our fingers to the bone, so give us a break, lighten up on us, and we'll willingly serve you. And the young king said, hmm, give me three days to think it over, and I'll get back to you. So he talked it over with the elders who had advised his father, Solomon. Solomon was a wise guy, wise man, <laughs> despite his, his flaws, and he had wise men around him. And, he said, and they said to him, if you'll be a servant to this people, be considerate of their needs, and respond with compassion, if you work things out with them, they'll end up doing anything for you. But then, then he asked his friends, the young men, who not only were trying to get on David's good side, but were kind of feeling pretty punky themselves because their buddy was now king of this really impressive country, this is what his friends said. Tell those people, my father was hard on you, but I'll be even harder. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And he didn't mean waist. If you think that life under my father was hard, I'm going to make it even worse. My dad thrashed you with whips. I'm going to beat you bloody with chains. Can you just imagine, like, young, young uh, cocky guys talking like that about something that they think somebody else ought to do, but they really wouldn't have to do themselves. So they kind of, they kind of boasted and bragged and puffed up Rehoboam. Rehoboam wasn't smart enough to choose the wiser course. So three days later, the people show up, and he repeats to them, at some level, what his friends said. Not to think about the finger. <laughs> but... When they heard that, all Israel realized that the king hadn't listened to a word they'd said, and they stood up and said to him, Get lost, David. We've had it with you, son of Jesse. Let's get out of here, Israel. And by let's get out of here, Israel, they meant the ten tribes of northern Israel. From now on, David, mind your own business. You're on your own. And with that they left. Rehoboam continued to rule those who lived in the towns of Judah, but the ten tribes of northern Israel were in rebellion against the Davidic dynasty ever after. So you've got this arrogant young king who refused to compromise, refused to look at it with the wisdom of, of age and elders, and the nation that had been so strong, so impressive, so vibrant, such an economic powerhouse for two monarchies split in two. And the two countries became weaker, and they had to form alliances with with other countries that weren't each other and they got themselves in a thicket of a mess and both of them were conquered within just hundreds of years. And what happened then? They got Jesus. Boy, were they surprised. We think Jesus. We think Jesus was a teacher. We think Jesus was, was a, a miracle doer and a healer before he went to the cross and became the Messiah. But Jesus did more than just teach. He listened as well. He listened to them when they were crying out. They were crying out for personal things, for healing. My daughter's sick. My, my, my menstruation keeps going and I'm, I'm unclean. I, I'm in pain all the time. I'm a leper and I look disgusting. I can't have a relationship with anybody and my family doesn't want me around because I'm contagious. The woman who was caught in adultery, she didn't cry out loud. She thought she was going to be stoned by the church people in town. And Jesus stepped in. But in her heart, she was crying, Lord, 
I'm sorry, save me, forgive me, help me. People cried out to Jesus individually. But they also cried out collectively. They cried out as a nation. They were crying out about how could their country be great again? I mean, they would never have the kind of freedom that we as Americans have. I mean, that would be a fairy tale. But they did remember the stories of greatness of David and Solomon. They remembered hearing that people had a little bit more money, that people could, people could walk the streets without being afraid. There were no Roman soldiers to sweep them off when, they were, when Pilate wanted to crucify a bunch and make a point out of something. They remembered when their country was stronger and more peaceful and more proud. And they wanted to return to that. That's not necessarily wrong. That's human heart. That's human nature. So Jesus said yes to the first thing. He did heal people who were hurting, the individuals, the families, and, and not just physically, but he gave, them, he gave them the prescription, the teaching about how to stay healthy spiritually, how to, how to have a family that's emotionally and relationally healthy. He simply said this. He said, follow me. That yoke I mentioned before, he said, put that on. Put mine on. That was, what, that was the decision that the disciples made when a rabbi said, come follow me. They had to agree to some stipulations that we're going to do what you say. That's the yoke of the rabbi. The rabbi's the farmer who tills the field and the disciples are the, are the servants who plow it, trusting that the rabbi's leading them in the right direction. Mark, uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. And Jesus said, amen to that. But you should pick me because the burden I give you is life-giving and it's light. So Jesus said yes to the people personally, but he said no to them nationally. He wasn't going to make Judea great again, at least not with some magical, supernatural, God-derived angel firepower. He wasn't going to be a king like David or Solomon. He wasn't going to be a, a strategist who wheeled and dealed and, and made things great like a human leader. He told them, if you want your country to be great, then you need to be great in my eyes. You need to follow me. You need to become humble. You need to become a blessing, not just to one another, but to the nations around you. That's greatness in my eyes. Eugene Peterson from uh, the Message Translation summarizes John 3.16 and the verses or two following this way. He said, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one needs to be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger and tell the world what's wrong with it. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under a sentence of death. And why? Because they didn't recognize the one-of-a-kind Son of God when they were first introduced. So, Caught Prairie, let's not mislead people by introducing them to the wrong Jesus. Let's get the story right. Let's, let's not be such bad reflections of Jesus or hypocritical examples of Christianity or just 
poor storytellers about what God really wants from us. It's not obedience to a law, it's trust in his heart. It's, let's make our, our family and our friends, our neighbors and our coworkers curious enough to ask about him and feel safe enough to try the yoke of Jesus on for themselves. I want you to listen to the story, Copperry, this short clip of a Copperry elder explaining how when he and his wife took on the yoke of Jesus, how that made a difference in their whole family and how one of their children, in this, in this anecdote, decided that he would be a faithful storyteller to the people who needed to hear the story of Jesus, rightly and desperately. Take a listen. And truly the greatest impact that we have seen is on our, on our middle son, on Chris. Um, he was so involved in the youth group here, in the wild group, um, did missions, uh, mission trips with them every year. Um, a matter of fact, he continued even after he graduated um, from high school, continued to come back and go on some of the mission trips with the folks uh, when they went out. And, uh, and continues to connect, literally to this day, still continues to connect with the kids that he went through um, wild with and that he did mission trips with. And so he almost uh, ended up getting a second family, so to speak. It's that group, there's still this group of kids, I call them kids, they're in their 20s now, um, but they still, they will still get together and hang out um, and play Monopoly until three or four in the morning. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. But he, he literally did make such a strong connection um, with some of the kids that he ended up going to wild with. Especially now, Copperary, in this post-election week 2020. Let's commit ourselves to making this next year when the nation's gonna need healing, when we're gonna need patience, when we may, God forbid, if we catch the virus, if we need healing, let's make our commitment that 2021 will be a year where, where we rightly tell the story of Jesus, where we boldly live the lifestyle of Jesus, and where we confidently trust the promises of Jesus that will change our lives and change the world with Jesus' love. You know, this week I'm asking you to pray and consider, are you willing to take up a yoke on your shoulder to be a servant for Jesus. The yoke is easy and the burden is light, but it is a commitment. Are you willing to make a financial yoke commitment for giving to God in 2021 so that, so that your heart gives from a joy of giving and your church gets to be blessed to keep changing lives with Jesus' love? We'll have pledge electronic pledge things ready for you next week. But the bigger question is, what does God, what does God want your story to look like? I pray, my friends, that your story will look a lot like his and your story will be magnificent because it's a small but immensely valuable part of his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give wisdom and humility to all in our nation, Lord, everyone in leadership. We pray that that's not just in the White House, but the Capitol, in the, in the governor's offices, in the state houses, Lord. We pray that there would be peace in our hearts, that justice in our streets, integrity in our courts, and shalom in all our homes. That whoever leads our country at the top, Lord, we may keep your name above even theirs. 
and your ways above even ours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.